tube. So imagine you have a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs and the tumor is the meatball, right? And you can take out the tumor, you can take out the meatball, right? But you still have all the spaghetti sauce and those are additional cells that are left over that, because again, glioblastoma just infiltrates all different parts of your brain. Like you can't perfectly clear the spaghetti from all of the red sauce that's on it. So a way to think about glioblastoma is like that. Glioblastoma, ever hear of it? Maybe not. But maybe you've heard of the names John McCain or Bo Biden, both of whom passed away from the deadly brain cancer. Amber Barback, founder of the Glioblastoma Research Organization, joins the podcast to detail what exactly glioblastoma is, and she gives us insight into her own personal journey with experiencing the loss of her father to this type of brain cancer as well. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beat Head pulled down over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender Darling, you were meant to survive How does glioblastoma differ from different tumors? Glioblastoma is the most common brain tumor, and it's a primary brain tumor, which means it starts in your brain as opposed to like a metastatic tumor, which means it starts somewhere else in your body and then spreads to your brain. So typically when someone gets a brain tumor diagnosis, again, glioblastoma is the most common, and it's extremely – people say it's rare. It's really not that rare, and it's just a very rapid, quick-growing, infiltrating brain cancer that just – is very deadly and it kind of just it looks like little stars and it has like tentacles and it like spreads out through your brain like like a little web and so mm -hmm. it's it's very challenging to treat and you know I think there's a lot more of a focus on it now just because of like the, how like it's becoming more common and again like people say it's rare and it's really not that rare so it's just a it's a rough cancer yeah well do you think it's just becoming more common because more people are seeking medical treatment or do you think it's becoming more common because there's more of it out there? I think, again, I can't speak for everyone, but I think most people do typically seek medical treatment because when you get diagnosed with a brain tumor, if you have like, neuro like neurological symptoms going on, like sometimes you're getting seizures, really bad headaches, and typically it becomes to the point where you need medical advice. So that's why you're going to seek medical treatment in which then yeah. a lot of people do find that they have a brain tumor. Um, but I think it's becoming just more commonly talked about because again, like looking back five years ago when my dad had brain cancer and, you know, he started his whole journey, like there was no community, there was absolutely nothing going on. And that was the reason why I created the organization in the first place. And it's just, I think that's just, it's becoming more talked about and it's becoming normalized to be able to talk about things that aren't necessarily as, as pleasant. Um, and I think the numbers honestly are going up year after year. And it's just, it's a shame that it's becoming this much, it's, you know, it's a popular cancer. It's the number one primary brain tumor that people get diagnosed with. And it's just not enough funding. And that was what uh, John McCain died, I believe. Of. Yeah. Um, in 2018, yeah, he, he got diagnosed in mid, mid July, 2017. And then he was, um, he had passed uh, about 13 months later. Then. Mm -hmm. Is that like, kind of like the average of average time frame? Average is like 15 to 18 months. But again, it depends. Cause like my dad was six months. 
I know people whose parents oh, were wow. in the he hospital for months. like two weeks. Like it really, it honestly just depends. But like a baseline average is like 15 to 18 months with treatment and standard of care. Oh, wow. Yeah. Six months. Really rapid. That is. Mm -hmm. um, how was that? Was that because um, I mean, I got to think there's no maybe you go seek treatment for like, I mean, John McCain, he, he saw a treatment for like a blood clot above his his eye and then walked out. I guess knowing he had like a terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. um, what was that experience like in, in, in your case? So my, I was living in Spain at the time. And the day that I left to Spain, my dad or the, the day before my dad was like, come take me to get an MRI. And I was like 21 at the time. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'll drive you to get an MRI. I don't really know what an MRI is. To yeah, be totally yeah, yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, sure. So I drive him there. I go home and I leave to Spain the next day because I was going to teach English to little kids in Madrid. And I guess like he found out then after the MRI that he had a brain tumor, but I didn't know anything until January of next year. So he was living with it for what, like four months and didn't tell me. And my parents didn't tell me because they were like, you know, Amber's living abroad. She's having the time of her life in Spain. We don't want to take that away from her. Yeah. Um, my parents do the same thing, by the way. They keep their their health um, on, the, on, the de on the down low so much. And then it's not until like something happens or like they have to tell you to when mm -hmm. they tell you it was frustrating though because again it's like if they had told me they knew i would have come home immediately yeah. which i would have and it's like this internal battle of like i got to have an incredible time traveling and i'm super fortunate for that but adversely my dad was had brain cancer like so it's it's this weird internal battle that i'll, I'll never be able to change again it, it yeah. is what it is um but i had uh yeah, so then I was like, again, fast forward to January and I was in Spain with my friends and, you know, I was like, it was a Sunday and I was having brunch and my mom calls me and she's like, are you, or can you talk? And like, my mom never calls me and she never, and it's never like, can you oh, talk? Oh, the can you like, talk? Oh, geez, I was, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, so yeah, something yeah. is wrong. So I like go home and she's like, well, your dad has a brain tumor. And I was like, or she's like, your dad has glioblastoma. I was like, what? It's like, first of all, what is that? And it's just, it's like this, you know, complete and utter shock. So I ended up flying home the, uh flew home the next day and, and how much in detail did she give you over the phone she was that? literally just like your dad has glioblastoma I, I think again she was super shocked too because it was after his surgery that they found out once they had run like mm. pathology on it but i think again she was by herself too so imagine in her situation where your husband and you're literally by yourself and your child is frolicking you know and you're up doing you know yeah. whatever it is that i was doing and yeah i googled glioblastoma and it's like brain cancer and just you don't process anything because it just Again, it's just like very confusing and there's like a lot of medical terminology. And again, that's what the organization aims to do is to, for when someone's Googling like what is glioblastoma and what someone wants to find information on what this disease is, we try to make it, you know, not welcoming, but, you know, as as easy and as friendly as possible yeah, to landing. understand. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, provide a bunch of different resources and be able to yeah. share what it is in, in a more relatable way. Yeah, because there's not a lot of good stuff on glioplastoma when you google it you know in terms of like the the dream cases of like people beating it and and things like that um there's it's it's really rough i can only imagine just googling it on your own and kind of seeing what it's like and then also too at the time you don't know it's going to be six months either mm -mm. you know you didn't know it was going to be that short i'm sure you, you had never imagined that i don't think 
again, it, it says like, you know, your prognosis is X amount of months, but like you, you know it's terminal at some point. But again, it's also difficult to say that because there are a lot of long-term survivors. I mean, there's an ambassador for our organization. His name's David and he's, I believe, like 20 years out and he's mm. he's absolutely thriving. And, you know, there's we've had a lot of people on the podcast like four years out, 10 years out, 15 years out. So it really just depends. And I, I think it just depends on the kind of treatment that people get plus their genetic makeup. So I think it's a very tricky disease and that's why we need to be funding more research to actually figure out like what is the cause and how do you fix it? Yeah. I don't know if you ever heard of the case for Jeremy Paterno. No. Um, he, back in January of 2020, um, went to the doctor because he, he was driving his daughter someplace and he ended up uh, trying to put like his car key and start the car and like his it's almost like his motor skills were off it took him like a bunch of times to like get the key in and a lot of that started happening um over the course of the next couple of days so one of his friends told him to go see his physician and he went to see the physician and the following tuesday he was undergoing brain surgery mm-hmm. it was that quick which is insane to think about that like you wake up you know some a little uh small symptoms like that, but concerning because obviously you know your body and like when you're in your 40s, you can definitely put your key in your car. And he undergoes brain surgery and he uh, at the Mayo Clinic uh, or the Mayo Clinic where John McCain actually Mm -hmm. did some of his treatments. And uh, he ended up uh, passing away about two years later, February of 2022. So this is just kind of like about a year or so or a little bit over a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. But his his story was compelling because he actually like recorded his whole treatments um, and got, we got like a really good insight of how the patient care was, how he basically was discussing his treatments and what he was going through emotionally from speaking, I mean, and actually referring to his past life and then his current life, mm-hmm. you know, his past life before the diagnosis and the treatments and now what he's going through now because he knew that it was terminal he doesn't know when but he was kind of like what i found really empowering behind what he how he was discussing his experience was that he kind of like to me came off as like kind of surrendering to what was occurring to him and kind of trying to find like a new appreciation mm-hmm. on life and it was eye opening to see him not take anything for granted anymore, but like also in the reverse where he was finally living his life to really like genuinely being happy, recording videos with his wife and spending a lot of time with his family, but also seeing his family's support to him, which I think we don't really think about a lot. Like when somebody has a diagnosis that's terminal or say something happens, but from a family's point of view, like not taking for granted the people we have in our lives, mm-hmm. you know, to where like, yeah, he, for example, him, he's taking on this whole new perspective, but his family also taking on a whole new perspective, which he didn't really get into in any of his YouTube videos, but I kind of picked up on that he glanced over of like his wife, his family, his daughters, and what you were talking about too before, all of a sudden it's it's six months later, you know, and you kind of, I'm sure, start rethinking of the previous times of like, you know, times you've spent with spent with that person times you or more time that you wish you would have maybe had and from him and his family like his uh 
I know in your podcast you had discussed uh, having more pictures mm-hmm. with your with your father, which was like kind of like personalizing it. And I could really feel what you were um, referring to there because like there, there's times even with friends and family that I have where I look, it's like the person's birthday and you look at your photos and you're like, wow, I only have like the same two photos, mm-hmm. you know? It's interesting because on the podcast and I think a lot of different guests that have come on and I've sort of said this in relation to when different guests have come on, but I'm always extremely humbled by the different interviews that I do because I tend to get stressed out by very minuscule things that are so unimportant. That is yeah. literally a waste of mental energy. And every single time you talk to someone that's a long-term survivor with brain cancer or someone that's had you know, a significant caregiving story or even these like medical advisors and researchers, it truly makes you realize how unimportant so many things are and that like truthfully just like being grateful and being able to be present and like be with the people that you care about is so important. And it's just like a constant reminder, which I am super, again, fortunate for that I get to be able to have that platform to be able to connect with these amazing people. It's just a constant reminder that life is very precious. And again, I think it's also challenging because life is finite at the end of the day. And that's something that I kind of had to come to terms with. And unfortunately, like a glioblastoma diagnosis in, you know, in the the rule, I'd say the rule, not the exception is that it speeds up that, you know that timeline for you and it's just it's just a constant reminder that you really just need to be present and be like happy with what you're doing and be around people that like love you and care about you because life is so short yeah i've developed a um from doing the podcast and speaking with people who run nonprofits and have had like experiences like you and then all of a sudden like change your life around i'm sure because now you do this rather than you're not in spain anymore Mm -hmm. um teaching kids in your case i would love to know like you hear about the diagnosis you come back to the United States. Are you like, how does that throw your life around? Because a lot of times people just look at, you know, obviously the, the person who has the, the illness, but like from a family's point of view, like it's almost just as hard. Uh, there's a famous saying in the Marines that the toughest job in the Marine Corps is the wife of a Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, because people don't really think about really what the experiences that they go through and then them having to move on past what eventually happens. It's interesting because I think I have a different scenario than most people probably. And again, when I was living in Spain, it was truthfully just like a gap year post-university. I wanted to, I didn't ever had like a study abroad experience. I had been working since day one of high school. My parents were like, if you want any, if you want to do anything with yourself, like you need to work, you have to pay for it. Like we don't, you're 15 years old, like you're an adult now. I was like, okay, guys. Like 15, they threw you to the wolves? <laughs> yeah, no, they were like, you're, you're going to work at a frozen yogurt shop. Like, like you're doing anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you're like, we're not. And so when I went to Spain, it was tr- it was just like this gap year post-college where I was just, I wanted to travel. I wanted to feel like, you know, be a, a kid for all mm-hmm. intents and purposes. And then I ended up coming home because, you know, because of my dad, but I wasn't in this place like where I had a very stable career. I wasn't, I was really, I was just traveling. And so it was a very, you know, not a good time for him to get brain cancer, but it didn't, it derailed my like personal life and my family life. But I wasn't, you know, working a nine to five at this like corporation where I was trying to go a corporate ladder. I wasn't like in law school. Like I had a very flexible schedule. So being able to be home with my mom and, and kind of like be a caregiver for him and support him, I was really fortunate to have that flexibility in my life at the time. That is nice to be able to come home and, um, just be a part of all that, mm-hmm. you know, because there's so many unknowns. Because I think, like, right now, you know, okay, it was six months, you said? Yeah. 
but you don't know at the time that it's just going to be six months. So like, there's so many unknowns at, at that point where you've got to be feeling, I mean, what is, what are some symptoms that you remember feeling during those six months um, that could kind of like put people there with you? Cause what, what um, time of year was it again? It was Jan. Oh, I moved home in January and he passed January. away in April. So it was very quick. I mean, again, like, if you talk to any person that's a caregiver, especially I think typically for someone that has a rapidly progressing terminal illness, it's you kind of just black out. I mean, you wake up every day and it's just like you're living your absolute worst nightmare yeah. and you have to still go on with your life. And again, I'm sure it's much harder for someone that's like working a nine to five, that's like supporting a family. I mean, there's caregivers all over the world in every Facet well, that's why life. there's nonprofits like you to come in and help. We're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's just, it's not easy. And it's thankfully, again, like my mom, she only worked in the mornings and I had a full day of flexibility. So like I would take like the morning shift with my dad. So from like oh, 7 a.m. to like 3 p.m. I'd be home with him. And then my mom would come home and I, you know, I got the opportunity to like go out with my friends and still try to be somewhat of a, a 21 year old and do yeah. my own thing. But it's still challenging because you're like smiling and like, you're out with your friends and inside your head you're like my parents like literally like dying in bed so yeah. it's it's a weird it's a weird thought for sure but it's also you have to like i think prioritize yourself as well and again as as challenging it as it was like i didn't want to like lose myself and so i still wanted again to like have things that i like to do like go, go out with friends like take my dog for walks like go out to the beach like restaurants whatever it is i wanted to do i ended up going to new york for a couple of days to visit friends i went to la twice for like you know, two or three days for like yeah. a weekend. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot. But you go closer to your family, I'm sure, you know. You do. You know, I wish it was under other circumstances. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's usually when people grow closer is during those, you know, in, in times of, of real toughness. I mean, if I think of a lot of times, like where did I connect with family the most? It was under like the, the highest levels of duress mm -hmm. with family members where you really realize like, you know, who's there? Why are they there? And um, I mean, it, it it's hard to create those like lasting connections with family members, like in, in happy times, because everyone's, you know, it, it's whatever. It's like during those times, you really, really know, damn, like that person is willing to do X, Y, and Z for me, mm -hmm. you know? But it's also challenging though, because again, like, imagine yes you can build these connections but it's also incredibly frustrating because okay put yourself in my situation like me, me my mom my dad only child we didn't even have i think we had just gotten our puppy which was like three weeks before he passed away but like you're stuck in this house all the time and one person cannot leave their bed and you're two tiny women in this situation and trying to get things done, which typically like the man of the house would do. And so it's like trying to do this thing that you're struggling to do and you're like butting heads because you're constantly with um, someone yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there was extremely, especially for my mom as well. I mean, like she would leave to work and she'd come back. Like, thankfully I had the afternoons to like decompress with my friends, but she was out working all morning and I don't think she even took any time for herself. And yeah. so as like good as it is to be able to like build these connections and to, you know, you realize like how strong people are and that you can support each other. Like, it's also really stressful. Like my mom and I would argue all the time. My dad at one point, he was like, if you guys keep arguing, I'm jumping off the balcony. <laughs> he didn't do that. But like, it's, it's, it's hard. It's very frustrating. And, you know, love my family to death. They're great. Yeah, yeah. But it's, 
you it's it's a lot well that's the thing i mean like your mom for example i mean going to going to work to then come home and probably do a harder job yeah you know a, a day in and day out i mean shout out mama barback right seriously yeah. Yeah, yeah she had i mean she had the brunt of it like again he got diagnosed in september and i was gone like so from september to january yeah. end of january she was by herself dealing with all of this and she didn't tell me about it yeah but i think that's that that's um you know i i think that that's kind of something like your mom and your dad might have like developed a really, really special bond for those couple of months through the holidays with each other, just because they're the only ones that truly know, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that's kind of like, I think that's really, really special and kind of like its own like little love story in and of itself, you know, especially through the holidays. And then they're, I mean, you, can you imagine the constant conversations that they had and what that entailed of how to tell you, when to tell you, things like we don't think about. Mm -hmm. And the timing too, and the holidays, and how do we do with the holidays, and how do we hide our emotions when they do speak with you? I mean, I think that that's really just so amazing to them as a couple in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I can't imagine that. And I think she was also, you know, partially frustrated because again, it's you have one child and you can't tell your child. I don't, I don't know if my grandparents knew. I feel like they probably did. There's no way they couldn't have known. I don't know. I probably should ask my mom. I never asked her that question. But again, it's like, I think it got to a point where I believe a week before his surgery, I had FaceTimed him and like he wouldn't answer FaceTime. Because I think, you know, you take steroids to help uh, co combat swelling in your brain. And I think his it makes your face like very swollen because your body retains water. And I FaceTimed him. He didn't answer. And I was like, why aren't you FaceTiming me? Like, what's up? Like, Hello. And he's like, oh, I can't talk right now. And then eventually, like, I call him six times. I'm just like, FaceTime me. Like, yeah, you know, like it, for no other reason than just being like, why aren't you answering the phone? And he answered and his face was like super swollen. And I was like, okay, something's off. And I was like, what's up with your face? Yeah, <laughs> and he's, yeah, like, he's yeah. like, I had an allergic reaction. And like this man ate five different, like his diet consisted of five different foods. I was like, you're not allergic to the five things that you eat. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, come on, yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I got allergic reaction to salmon. I was like no you've been eating this for like the last like my entire existence so I call my mom and I'm like what's up with dad and she's like I just like I think he like we put too much salt on something I was just like you guys are obviously lying that was to a me. Weak, that was a weaker excuse though. yeah I was like that's the ridiculous salt. and so I knew something was wrong and honestly I would like take the bus in school or like to go to the school that I was teaching at which is like an hour bus ride and I would listen to like these two songs on my playlist and I would always have these like visions that my dad was sick I don't even know how to explain it. I would like look out the window and like feel like I would have to fly home eventually because like something was wrong with my dad. Mm. Little do you know, like three weeks later, the whole thing happened. Crazy. That is. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And Father daughter connection. It's a thing. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, you're not kidding. Um, and did you ever end up going back to Spain? No. I went back to Spain a month later because I had like, again, I had to move home overnight and I had bought a bunch of stuff while I was there. So I couldn't fit it all into my bags that I had moved there with. So I ended up going to Spain for like the weekend to pack up my stuff. I went to like all my favorite restaurants and then I hadn't gone back. And then actually like a year and a half later, I was, ended, you know, I was seeing someone that was living in Spain. So I kind of felt like I had to do this, like my last hurrah of Spain, like finish out my time there. So I spent three months there over the summer, like a year and a half later. So that okay. was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you move back here and uh, you start the... The nonprofit started five months after my dad passed away. Five months? Yeah. Okay. Founded it October 2018. You weren't fucking around. You just got no, right into it. Like, Good for you. Go. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. And so I Googled... 
I actually reached out to a few nonprofits and I was like, can I work for you? Can I volunteer? Can I do literally anything? No one answered me. I was like, really? Yeah, surprisingly. I was like, let me like do stuff for you for free. And you know, there was two organizations at the time. Um, they didn't answer me. I was like, okay, well, I'll just start my own. I like literally yeah. go to, and to like incorporate.com. Like I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And just like, it's like incorporate.com. You pay like $200 and you like register an organization. And so, you know, five years later, here we are. Awesome. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good for you. I fucking love that. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been fun. It's been a really rewarding experience. What's been the most challenging about it? Starting a nonprofit. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. But again, it's just a lot of nonprofit CEOs and presidents, they typically tend to be older and they have a lot of experience in nonprofit management and mm -hmm. just significant amount of like, you know, more more life experience in, in the corporate realm. And I was just like, you know, my background's marketing, partnerships, advertising, event planning. I was like, let's do a nonprofit, make it, you know, relatable for people my age. And so there wasn't this like rule book to follow. So I think every day was a learning experience. It still is. I learn something new every single day. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, I yeah. think that an experience, it's it's challenging, but it's like a fun challenge to be able to just do all this, you know, oh, to yeah. do whatever, you know, to do any idea that comes to our mind. And like the team's growing a lot. And just to have, like, you know, a really great collaborative group of people that want to work together to elevate the cause. Yeah, live and breathe it. I mean, gosh, the work you do. Um, and I mean, can you tell us a little bit about um, some of your everydays? Oof. Um, no day is the same. Like absolutely none. A lot of what we're doing is, you know, we partner with other organizations. We like to grant match each other. So we don't believe in silos and we really like to work with other nonprofit organizations. Okay. So we kind of, part of the day is spent communicating with them. We work with other ph uh, pharma and biotech companies, you know, trying to elevate the cause. Uh, podcast is a recent thing that happens about twice a year. So we're in the middle of recording the mini series and that is already live. Um, what else? You know, we have weekly calls. I have weekly calls with my PR and social media team. We've got a new business development director. We're working on establishing partnerships. We're working on a fundraiser in Miami for Paddle Padel players, mm -hmm. which is happening February 3rd. We're doing a summit in Miami next November. So there's a lot of new stuff that's coming about now. So truthfully, every single day is different. That's awesome. And we are a small team, so we're trying to do like as many things as we can within our... It's usually like that. Yeah. You're looking at a small team here on the podcast too. <laughs> I couldn't tell. I, yeah. <laughs> you know how it is. Yeah. No, it's tough. I mean, and and fundraising has got to be uh, difficult too, especially with like when the people don't realize when economies start going downwards, the very, very first, I'd say institution that starts to get drained from money is typically nonprofits because people look at their expenses and go, what do I absolutely not need to be putting out anymore? And typically it's like their donations to organizations, which end up obviously being nonprofit. So like, I can only imagine kind of like dipping into a little economic downturn, how that's played and having to push kind of through that, just like a lot of businesses have to push through with people maybe pulling back a little bit. Um, how, how is fundraising? How are you, have you found any niches? Is it, if it's online, if it's like organizing events, mm -hmm. So for us, we've actually never done any in-person event. We're five years in. We haven't done any in-person really? event. Yeah. So all of our fundraising strategy has been digital, and it's just because of us putting our name out there and creating these online initiatives. We've been fortunately able to fundraise. And it's challenging because as a nonprofit that's a public organization, you're fully dependent on the public for your fundraising. So I can't choose when 
Joe in Alabama decides to donate yeah. me or like, you know, anywhere else. It's it's truly just like we have to our hope is that we continue establishing, you know, these initiatives and efforts and hope that we will be able to raise funds, which we successfully have so far. We raised about one point three million dollars just through social media, you know, and on our online presence, which is great. We did a virtual 5K this past September, which raised $80,000. So we had 485 attendees from all over the world and they did their own fundraising for the event. So now we're kind of starting to look at as we're growing and looking into like, you know, Q1, Q2 of next year, we're trying Mm -hmm. to establish different initiatives, bring in different organizations, work on different brand partnerships. So we're trying to expand more and, you know, thinking of more of a, a business mindset to grow the organization and as incredible as the as incredible as it's been to be get all of the the donor funds that are just again publicly crowdfunded, we're trying to be able to create more streams of donations to be able to continue operating and to continue growing. I need to take some notes from you if you're over a million already, because <laughs> I spent like probably like three or four months like trying to fundraise myself through just social media, nothing in person. I'm like more of like an in-person type of person as well to try to fundraise, but like other people have to be part of that in-person mm-hmm. person event in order for it to work. And um, it's just, it's it's hard, you know, cause you're putting like all your eggs in one basket for in-person events. And That's why I haven't done it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And like they can work out, but then there's also like a high cost of like doing it. So you're hoping for like a, a return on it. You know, mm-hmm. you put together a dinner or something and, and have people come, but like if they don't come, you know, you've been advertising for it for like maybe a month, two months to put all this together. And then like, if you, if you don't end up walking away with a lot to be able to put then towards research and things, um, uh, what do uh, your uh, fundraisers eventually go to? The fundraisers go to the organization and the organization's mission is to raise awareness and funds for glioblastoma. So in that, the mission is two parts. One is the raising awareness, which is creating community initiatives like the podcast and being able Mm -hmm. to create these different resources for anyone that comes to the organization to find out more information about glioblastoma and to get support. And on the other side of that, it's the, you know, raising funds to donate to doctors and researchers around the world that are doing glioblastoma research projects. So it's like a twofold mission. Is there a lot of research being done? A ton of research. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of research being done. I think now more than, you know, as opposed to five years ago when I first started the organization, it takes a long time to see results from the research because research, it just, it's significantly lacking funding. I mean, to put it into perspective, this is not on the research side, but in, you know, in the clinical and treatment side of it, it's one machine for proton radiation therapy. Essentially, there is a radiation machine and that can radiate your entire body. In this case, it would radiate your entire brain. Proton machine is where it pinpoints the tumor in your body and it radiates like that one specific point. And if you're someone that's doing like proton radiation therapy, there is less damage done to the surrounding area because it's so targeted. Mm. And so again, just to put into perspective, one of the largest institutions in the entire United States, they have raised, you know, I'd say roughly like $50 million in their existence. And one proton radiation machine costs $50 million. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of- $50 million. Yeah, it's crazy. And so that, you know, that shows that just as much as research is advancing and a lot of things are happening, but there's just so much more money needs to go into it. I mean, you look at something like Susan G. Komen and breast cancer, they've raised $3 billion. So it's a wow. long way That's to go, a, but uh, it's, yeah, yeah, we're getting yeah, yeah, there yeah, slowly, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, I can I can only imagine how much freaking goes into that fundraising man too for all of that. That yeah. is years and years. And the, the, I don't want to say that this is, it's a, it's a, 
good thing. Um, it's awful. I say it's like a, a double-edged, I don't even want to say it's a double-edged sword, but um, a, uh, I'd say a, a little, something that's good that comes out of something bad is, is something that like someone like John McCain, mm-hmm. who ends up passing away from it, it grabs attention of mm-hmm. people. You know, when, when there's a headline name of someone who eventually, like Magic Johnson, when he got HIV, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people go, holy shit. Well, what is it? They start getting educated on it. Who it affects? And then they start thinking, oh, well, if it could happen to them, it could definitely happen to me. Yeah. Kind of like a silver lining. I guess that's what I was, <laughs> what yeah, I mean, I was looking it's, for. It's super unfortunate. I actually was fortunate enough to have the McCain family on my podcast. I had Megan and her brother, Jimmy, and, you know their name and you know being a McCain family like they have brought a lot of attention to it and it's you know it's incredibly unfortunate they lost their father but it's something we were able to connect about and they've brought a lot of awareness to the initiative and you know we're thankful that they're partners of our organization that they've been on the podcast and you know it's just it's glioblastoma something that doesn't get a lot of attention unless it happens to you no matter if you're someone famous no matter if you're just you know someone in anywhere in the world it's unless you get affected by it or unless, you know, someone like me where you're following my Instagram page and you see me posting about it 24 seven, like odds are you're not learning about what glioblastoma is unless there's a direct correlation in your life. And so that's what we're doing through the organization to try to change that because it can, again, it can literally happen to anyone. Doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter your age, where you're, you know, where you're from, your race, ethnicity, like it literally does not matter. It can just happen. And that's why there needs more research. You know, we need more research to be able to figure out you know, what's actually going on and why is it being caused? And again, like, how do we fix it? So, yeah. yeah. I feel like most people, even like John McCain, I mean, Bo Biden, Joe Biden's son, that's, this is what he passed away mm-hmm. from too. A lot of people just, you know, they cancer, they put it in this like humongous bubble when there's so much more specifically to all of these different types. Um, and it's not something either that, generally i think maybe you can correct me on this if i'm wrong that you can go back and pinpoint and go well that's the reason why i got it like people working on uh construction sites or anything like that eventually develop maybe like lung cancer from breathing in all of the the dust over time maybe without wearing a mask it's not something like that where you can go back and pinpoint it to there's a lot of like hypotheticals yeah you know there was a an article that the phillies that there was turf that was causing brain cancer and then there was controversial articles that came out saying like yes it is causing an adversity there was controversial you know articles that came out saying like no it didn't cause brain cancer and some people say that like phones cause brain cancer there's no actual science backing that right now there's some causes that say like genetic might be a factor but there's no actual research being done and i think unless you have the funding to be able to support all those like hypotheses like yeah. there's no answer yeah and, and in Bo Biden's case it was he was when he was deployed this is what they say or that this is what his family says that it was um because of the toxic waste that they were burning in Iraq like if um you know if they're trying if they're leaving like a site and they're they're burning things that's what he got it from but like it's obviously very hard to speculate and pinpoint it unless obviously like you know, an entire, like in his case, if he was out there and like his entire um, troop got yeah. got it, then you could be like, oh, well, then obviously something happened. But even then, you know, it's hard to really say exactly. Truthfully, is just dependent, I think, on every person's situation. But what we're doing here at the organization is to try to share that glioblastoma is brain cancer and it is important. It needs funding. It can happen to anyone and just try to be as broad as possible to 
you know, encourage people that donating is important because it can happen to absolutely anyone. And that's why you should care about it. And how many people does it affect, you know, like a yearly? About like roughly, I'd say like a little less than 15,000 Americans. I don't have the global statistics, but again, those are also reported cases. There yeah. are probably a lot of different cases where people haven't gotten diagnosed. So it's, it's, it's an increasing number for sure. A ton of cases. And I mean, if, especially if you think back to like probably like pre like 50s or 60s, how many people have had it like mm -hmm. completely undiagnosed who had passed from it that like we don't even know like that that's what they passed from because it definitely didn't just like all of a sudden was born in the last like 20 years. It just we just started, I guess, because of medical advances, being yeah. able to track it more and put it out there more. But you also have to think about like different circumstances. Imagine you're someone like that goes to a community hospital in the middle of, I don't know, I'm looking at your map, like in the middle of Utah, right? That's not a, a cancer center. It's just your local hospital that maybe not be in the best area that doesn't have like a proper staff to diagnose. And they can say like, okay, you have a brain tumor. Again, if you're not going to a proper institution, there's no way to guarantee that they're doing all the proper testing, all the proper pathology, like biopsies and surgeries. So there's also, I'm sure in my opinion, probably a large percentage of people that aren't being diagnosed with glioblastoma. So like, that just makes the number higher as well because you can't guarantee that every single doctor around the entire world, I mean, imagine in you know, third world countries, like we don't know how they're operating. We don't know if every single case is recorded. So, I mean, what we do at the organization is like we really pride ourselves on having a global digital community. So we have people, again, like in this past 5K, we had people participating from 15 different countries. And if you look at our podcast statistics, like it's downloaded in 68 countries. I mean, we have a significant global reach and that's what we try to do is not, you know, just confine ourselves to North America. We really do want to be able to be a resource and provide information to people all over the world. And, and we get a lot of emails that come in of, you know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, I'm in Australia, I'm in the UK, I'm in Italy, like where can I go for resources? And that's something that we're still working on developing, but we're really proud to be part of something called the IBTA, which is the International Brain Tumor Alliance. And it has organization leaders from patient advocacy organizations all over the world. I'm not exactly on the number, but it's a significant amount. And, you know, there's two, you know, there's one meeting every year where all these leaders come together and we all work to create awareness and create initiatives and just to be able to talk about like, what, what is that we're doing, how we're working to advance, you know, again, awareness in our different countries, how we're working to provide support to patients and caregivers. So it really is a collaborative effort. And I think that is a organization that is spearheading a lot of this global collaboration. So we're just really thankful to be a part of it. And again, it's just what we do is not confined to one place is we just want to be able to provide information to people all over the world. And that's why I'm really thankful that We've been able to grow our digital presence. We've focused our organization on digital platforms just because it's, and you, you know, most people are, have access to to the internet. So we're really thankful to be able to be a resource for people just everywhere. Is that the coolest thing too? When you see like podcast statistics and just see like where people are listening from, and you're like, what? Like, yeah, what? it's awesome. <laughs> no, like, it's, <laughs> it's the coolest thing ever. I mean, again, I started the organization and. You know, this just to put into perspective, like I thought maybe I would raise like $2,000 one day and we've yeah. raised now like 1.2 million, like yeah. beyond my wildest dreams, right? Like it's it's incredible to see the impact that we've been able to have and the support we've been able to provide. But alongside that for the podcast as well, it's, I started the podcast for fun and I wanted to create an additional resource, but I had no expectation of what it was going to turn into. And now we have, again, like 40,000 downloads, This you know, downloaded in 68 countries, like it's crazy, yeah, 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 yeah. which is, it's awesome. And I'm really happy people get to find comfort and use it as a resource for whatever it is that they're going through. So hypothetical for you, if um, you were to get 
like say like five hundred million dollars like tonight for my favorite question. Yes, ever. Um, what would like the first the next like six months look like for you? Building a cancer center. I would like to build like a very large brain tumor institution mm -hmm. that is focused on glioblastoma and employed, you know, surgeons. And I want it to be like a a one building that you can have like surgery, medical providers, like radiation, proton radiation machine. I want it to have literally everything and have people be able to have comprehensive care, community support. Like that's what I'd probably do with 500 million. Mm. And of course, continue growing the organization and the initiatives. But that's, I'd say, the first investment that we would do. Okay. And that's what, uh, is it 50 million per machine? I'm awful at You math. only need one machine. Only one. Oh, duh. Because just of one. the, uh, you could have like a, uh, assembly line of people going through that then with just yeah. one. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, think of if you go to an, any emergency room, I mean, how many MRI machines do they have? They probably have like one or two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's, that's, it's, that's like a one time. Have people fly in yeah. for it. That would be cool. Yeah. Have your own center there. Yeah. Um, Kind of like the American Children's Hospital, but like specifically. Well, there's actually a, an cancer. institution in uh, Phoenix called the Ivy Brain Tumor Center. And I interviewed Catherine Ivy. She founded the organization. She has, um, it's called the Ivy Brain Tumor Foundation. And they have the Ivy Brain Tumor Center. And they're essentially another great organization. And they raise awareness and funds for brain cancer. And it was founded by her and her now late husband. And she's a huge inspiration to me. I mean, she built a brain tumor center. Like I, I want to be like her and she's, she's, she's awesome. She's an incredible woman. And I was thankful enough to be able to interview her on the podcast this past season, but that's definitely like an inspiration and a direction I would like to go in at some point. And that's, so that is obviously your mega goal. Yeah. Um, for, uh, for well, the mega goal is to find a cure for brain cancer, but like in facilitating that we'd like to have our own institution where we can have, you know, cutting edge research being done and surgery and new developments and, what what is the can you bring us up to speed on like what is the current where is the current research at with possibly finding a cure or elongating the treatments to and survival? That's a tricky question. So the standard of care is chemo and radiation, mm -hmm. and people typically do it in com you know in combination with each other. But there's also different clinical trials, and there's hundreds of companies that conduct these different clinical trials and there are different criterias for each trial. So not everyone gets the opportunity. Some are for recurrent, which means your cancer came back. And some are, you know, firstly, you know, newly diagnosed, which is, you know, it's your first time discovering you have a brain tumor and you want to enter into a clinical trial. There are a lot of different companies and, you know, biotech and pharma that are getting approval to go into these different phases of trials. And some are working on like FDA approval. So there's just so much happening, but it really is just there are a lot of different companies in phase one, phase two, and phase three right now. And these approvals take very long time. So it's kind of like there's stuff happening, but I truly don't know like the trajectory of when a result's actually going to happen. But stuff is like a lot of stuff is in the works and a lot's being done in the field. It's just we don't have an answer yet. Because I think I think a lot of people think like, oh, well, like especially tumor wise. Um, well, can't you just like do surgery and take it out? Like, I feel like that's like most people's like initial because we're so uh, we're so freaking privileged medically in, in America where like the, the things that doctors can do, mm -hmm. people like take for su such for granted, such for granted that they think things are so easy when they are so much more complex than just like going in and removing something like it's, um, I don't know. 
hard to come up with a metaphor on that, but uh, it, it's it's so much more complex. And I think that that's typically um, what people think of a tumor as like something uh, like you're digging for gold. You know what I'm saying? Like as soon as you get it, mm -hmm. you take it out. It's close not like it up, a, it's not like a claw machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So glioblastoma in particular, it's you can a doctor. His name's Randy D'Amico. He works at Lenox Hill. He was on the podcast this past season. He's great. Um, he essentially gave me this analogy, which can probably help put it into perspective. So imagine you have a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs and the tumor is the meatball, right? And you can take out the tumor. You can take out the meatball, right? But you still have all the spaghetti sauce and those are additional cells that are left over that because again, glioblastoma just infiltrates all different parts of your brain. Like you can't perfectly clear the spaghetti from all of the red sauce that's on it. So a way to think about glioblastoma is like that. And that's, that was a great analogy for me. And I think it helps put it into perspective that you know, it's, there's a lot like residual, there's a lot of residual cells and stuff on a scientific level that I don't have the medical capacity to talk about, but it makes it more complex than just like taking something out and then like, you know, okay, like wipe our hands, it's clean, it's done. And again, the brain is also hard because there are different parts of your brain that have different functions. And so there are certain areas of the brain that can't be operated on. And there's some parts of the brain that you can only operate so much. So it really is just a very challenging thing, especially because it's in your brain, which is your central nervous system. It's not like I have a tumor popping out of my arm and, you know, like you can probably, again, I don't you know, I don't know arm surgery, right? But I yeah. imagine that it's easier just to, you know, take that off or you, you know, cut off your arm, right? It's, you can't, yeah, your brain, yeah. you know, your brain is in charge of your entire body. So you have to be so careful and particular about what you're doing. And so we're talking about the $500 million. Hopefully that comes your way. Hopefully. I'm praying for you. Thank you. Um, if anyone is listening who has $500 million to spare, guys, <laughs> consider it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but what's the next steps for you guys in like the immediate future? It's like in the next year or so in terms of research funding. And yeah, um, we're launching two new research projects. Hopefully in the next couple of months, we have our virtual 5k, which is happening December 26. People can go on our website, gbmresearch.org and check it out that way and sign up and register It's $35 and you can do your own fundraising. We have a paddle tournament happening in Miami on February 3rd at reserve. So tickets will be on sale in the next Probably about the time that this podcast comes out, so it should be open on our website as well. Uh, we are doing a panel at the Edition Hotel in New York for May, which is Brain Cancer Awareness Month. Tickets are not on sale yet. And then we have a summit, a glioblastoma summit, which is going to be in November of 2024. So we're really excited to get community members and just honestly being able to, for anyone to just check out the organization, follow us on social media, which is like at glioblastoma research. People can get involved that way and sort of just check out what we're doing. Cause again, awareness is the, the first step in what we're doing. So any effort really helps. So thankful that there's actually, there's, there's people out there like you that see something, have experienced it and then try your, drop everything to literally try to um, keep other people from experiencing that same experience. Um, so, uh, th thanks for, thank you for all your work out there. Yeah. Well, thanks for, on. thanks for having me on the show to share, you know, with you more about what we're doing and your followers as well. So yeah, it was, it was nice to be able to, to share more about the organization and hopefully, you know, you guys will get involved. I expect to see you at our events in Miami next year for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, it was, a. Uh, it was great to to come on the show and sort of just share what we're yeah, what we're and we'll on. we'll touch base and see how much um a if you got if somebody actually listened and gave that five hundred million dollars um <laughs> and b um we'll touch base at a fundraiser see how you're doing and then we'll reconnect next year sometime or something and see how many uh, people you've helped and we'll see you down the road then sounds good thanks for having me. Uh -oh.